0: Swiftly turn the murmuring wheel, Night has brought the welcome hour, When the weary fingers feel, Help, as if from fairy power. Dewy night air shades the ground, Turn the swift wheel round and round. Now beneath the starry sky, Couch the widely scattered sheep, Ply the pleasant labour ply, for the spindle, while they sleep, runs with speed more smooth and fine, gathering up a trustier line. Short-lived likings may be bred by a glance from fickle eyes, but true love is like the thread which the kindly wool supplies, when the flocks are all at rest, sleeping on the mountain's breast. Those words were written by the great poet William Wordsworth in his Song for the Spinning Wheel, and they represent both a trade and an art which goes way back into the history of peoples the world over. The skills of weaving, spinning and knitting were vital to clothe and keep warm members of every class, race, religion or social group from the poorest to the richest. And so, we find wool, yarn and thread and the working of those materials rooted very deeply in the folklore of countries around the globe. And rooted is the right term to use. In the myth of the world tree, wool was positioned at the roots of the tree and has an association with the earth and the realms of the underground. In the Norse creation myth, man and woman originate from the trees, ask from the ash and embla from the elm. In the Christian creation story, the first man and woman become Adam and Eve. When Adam delved and Eve span begins one of the oldest English rhymes dating from the peasant revolt. Is there evidence that Eve did indeed spin? Or did a goddess weaver create the stars? And was it a deity, or someone altogether more down-to-earth, who decided to knit the first cosy for the first telephone box? I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today we explore the folklore of wool, thread, and the associated skills involved in working them, from the creation of the world to the streets of our modern cities. Welcome. To the Folklore Podcast. Folklore. The beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. return to our first question, there is no evidence in the book of Genesis to suggest that Eve span. The iconography of Eve with a distaff and spindle is very much the creation of medieval Christian visions of the Bible characters. We may not be able to pinpoint its precise origins, although illuminations as early as Psalters in the 13th century depict Eve in this way but we can be certain that the skills of spinning and weaving hold such importance that deities who are revered for these skills occur in many early mythologies and beliefs. The goddess Weaver in ancient Chinese stories was the daughter of the Jade Emperor and the Celestial Queen Mother. She was said to have woven the stars and their light which crossed the sky in the form of the Silver River. Today, we call this the Milky Way. The goddess Weaver was said, in a folk tale sometimes called The Weaver Girl and the Cowherd, to have descended to earth from the celestial court some 4,000 years ago. Here, she fell in love with a mortal man, a cowherd. Newlang, the cowherd, was an orphan who was treated badly by his older brother and his wife. They sent him to live alone, giving him only an ox-cart and an old buffalo. The buffalo and its master depended upon each other, but the cowherd was very lonely. One day, the buffalo miraculously spoke to Newlang, telling him that a band of fairy women from heaven would be found swimming in the lake, and that if he took the red clothes from the bank, then their owner would become his wife. He went to the lake and did so, Seeing him, all of the celestial women quickly dressed and flew to heaven, but for Jinu, the one whose clothes New Lang held. He asked her to marry him, and she quickly agreed, and the couple fell very much in love. The cowherd and the goddess Weaver lived happily together. He tilled the land, and she wove cloth. Notice the similarity to the 13th century poem regarding Adam and Eve. One day, the buffalo warned his master that he was about to die, and instructed him to keep his hide for a later emergency. Lang was very sad, but did as he was instructed. Shortly after this event, Jinu's grandmother in the heavens learned of the marriage to a mortal, and was very angry. She was the queen of the Emperor of the Heavens, and as such, "'sent down gods and soldiers who quickly reclaimed Jinu. "'Seeing this happen as he returned from the fields, Lang put their children into baskets, "'put on the buffalo hide, and flew to the heavens in pursuit. "'Now here the versions of the tale vary. "'In one version the grandmother separates the lovers, "'and Jinu threatens to stop weaving the silver river, "'which would threaten heaven and earth with darkness.' In the other version, the Silver River is used to keep the lovers apart. Either way, as a concession, the cowherd and his children live on one side of the Silver River, and his wife on the other. They are allowed to reunite once a year, on the seventh day of the seventh moon, that is, July the 7th. Since ancient times, as this tale is one of the great Chinese love stories, This date has been the effective Chinese Valentine's Day. It is said that at this time you will not see magpies on earth, because they fly to the heavens to build a bridge between the lovers. The weaver is associated with the star Vega, and the cowherd with Altair. These two stars sit on either side of the Milky Way. Altair is adjacent to two small bright stars said to be the children of the couple. On July the 7th, young women in some areas of China pray to the Milky Way for good needlework skills. In the Tang Dynasty in China, the weaver goddess was said to have come to earth with her two attendants, where she showed a court official that the robe of a goddess has no seams because of it being created on a loom rather than by needle and thread. This phrase, a goddess's robe is seamless, became embedded in the language of the culture, Representative of an example of perfect workmanship. We may also find a weaving theme in a tragic Japanese folk tale, Suru no Ongaishi. Again, there are a couple of versions of this. One day, while working on his farm, a white crane falls from the sky in the fields where a young man is working. He notices that it has been hit by an arrow. He cares for the bird and cleans its wound before returning it to the skies. Later that day, when he arrives home, he finds a beautiful girl at his hut whom he has never seen before. She says that she is his wife and, despite protestations that he cannot support her, she insists that she has plenty of rice and prepares dinner. They continue to live together and the sack is always full of rice. One day, the woman asks her husband to build her a weaving room, but instructs him that he must never look inside. She shuts herself away and emerges seven days later, very thin, but with a beautiful piece of cloth, which she says will fetch a good price at market. The man sells it, and indeed it does make a lot of money. The woman again shuts herself away to weave, but the man cannot contain his curiosity as to how she weaves with no thread and he looks inside the room. There he sees that the woman has gone, and in her place is the crane, pulling out its feathers and using them as thread to weave. Having been seen in her true, pitiable state, the crane flies off, leaving only the cloth to remember her by. In the other version of this tale, the role of the man is replaced by a poor elderly couple, but the rest of the story remains very similar. It is essentially a variant of the curiosity killed the cat moral. Weaving, if you are not a bird, usually of course begins with spinning. In relatively modern historical times, it is usually thought to be the case that spinning is a female role, whereas weaving was more of a male tradition. It is more the case, however, that men have taken on what was a more inherently female calling Certainly, among the pantheons of the gods, only the goddess characters wove. In modern societies, across the mid-parts of Asia, weaving is certainly associated with women. In more ancient history, there are more definite gender distinctions, and Herodotus noted that among the Egyptians, for example, it was the men who wove. The spinning wheel as a tool to aid in the production of yarn was not invented until the 14th century. Prior to this, all spinning would have been undertaken using a distaff and spindle. We find the distaff as an emblem in various pieces of folklore. In English, the term distaff-side indicates relatives on the maternal side, linking in with the idea of spinning being a female pursuit. The male side of the family is known as the spear-side. January the 7th, the first free day after the 12 days of Christmas, is often celebrated as St Distaff's Day. We find it noted in Chamber's Book of Days that on this day the women would return to spinning, having either nothing else to do with their time after the rest period, or undertaking it between bouts of other more serious work. They should probably have not worked too hard at it on this day, however. The ploughboys were not hugely motivated to go back to work on this day, and took it upon themselves instead to set fire to the flax that was produced. In response to this prank, the maids would douse the men with water from their pails. We might assume that the Christmas spirits had not quite diminished by the thirteenth day. The poet Robert Herrick recorded St. Distaff's Day in a short stanza. Partly work and partly play, you must on St. Distaff's Day. From the plough soon free your team, then cane home and father them. If the maids a-spinning go, Burn the flax and fire the tow. Bring in pails of water then, Let the maids be-wash the men. Give St. Distaff all the right, Then bid Christmas-sport good-night, And next morrow every one To his own vocation. Humour aside, of course, spinning was a very important skill, and the act of spinning and the distaff itself became synonymous with the womenfolk. An unmarried woman was referred to as a spinster, for example. In France, the proverb came about that the crown of France never falls to the distaff. Whilst a woman would not be able to make a full living from spinning, according to Anthony Fitzherbert in his Book of Husbandry, It stopeth a gap in fact no rank was too high to use a spindle and distaff in the book of proverbs king solomon spoke of women laying their hands to the distaff and its use could be traced on the monuments of ancient egypt in pre-dynastic egypt the goddess neith as well as being a war goddess was also one of weaving she is known by other similar names including as nit Whilst I would love to be able to tell you that the etymology of knitting comes from this root, sadly it is not the case. We'll move on to knitting in a while. In his book The Gods of the Egyptians, however, author E. A. Wallace Budge does note that the root of the word weaving is the same as for the word being. One of the oldest of the Greek mythological tropes has the Moirae or fates as three crones who spin the thread of human destiny. Whilst this is a more allegorical representation of thread on the distaff, we find weaving and spun thread cropping up elsewhere in the mythological tales. In Crete, Ariadne had the spun thread which Theseus used to safely navigate the maze of the Minotaur. In the Olympian tales, Athena is the weaver goddess who lost to Arachne in a weaving competition. The latter's punishment was to be turned into a spider so that she could spend the rest of her time weaving. There are many more examples through Homer's Odyssey and into Roman literature. Many other countries have folklore pertaining to spinning and weaving. Among these, the Baltic countries. Here, in their mythology, Saul is a sun goddess whose presence is signed by a wheel and who spins the sunbeams. Whilst Baltic legends have certainly taken on aspects of myth from other areas, such as the Greek, as well as Christian symbolism, the connection between the sun and spinning is certainly old here. Ancient burial mounds have been found to contain spindles made from amber, also known as the sunstone. The Kalevala, the Finnish epic poem of the 19th century, which was compiled from the oral folklore and mythology of Karelia and Finland, contains a number of references to spinning and weaving goddesses. For example, Rune 8, Maiden of the Rainbow, begins. Poyola's fair and winsome daughter, glory of the land and water, sat upon the bow of heaven, on its highest arch resplendent, in a gown of richest fabric, in a gold and silver air-gown, weaving webs of golden texture, interlacing threads of silver. Weaving with a golden shuttle, with a weaving comb of silver. Merrily flies the golden shuttle, from the maiden's nimble fingers. Briskly swings the lathe in weaving, swiftly flies the comb of silver. From the sky-born maiden's fingers, weaving webs of wondrous beauty. In later European folklore, both weaving and spinning keep connections with magical properties. The character of Mother Goose, as a traditional teller of stories, is sometimes associated with weaving, undoubtedly because of the connection of spinning yarns that goes with storytelling. Mother Goose is an interesting character whose origins are somewhat shrouded in folklore. The title is one given to an imaginary teller of fairy stories, usually as the archetype of a rural countrywoman. No individual author is associated with the character, and the first appearance cannot be put to one time or person. She is sometimes known as Bertha the Spinner, or the Goose-Footed Queen, after the wife of King Robert II of France, who was a great storyteller, although the great folklorist and authority on Mother Goose, Iona Opie, did not hold with this. An apocryphal theory from America holds that Mother Goose was a real person, the wife of Isaac Goose, in the late 1600s. The motifs of spinning are very strong in a number of fairy tales, and we naturally think of sleeping beauty here. In all the various forms of this story, as fairy tales always exist in many variants, the sleeping curse is activated by the pricking of her finger on a spindle. The tale of Rumpelstiltskin, where the sprite aids a girl whose daughter claims that she can spin straw into gold, is also common and was already old when it was collected by the Grimm's. In the tale of the Three Spinners, number 14 as collected by the Grimm's, we find parallels with the Rumpelstiltskin story. Here, the unwilling girl who should be spinning is aided by three deformed characters who tell how they got their deformities from years of spinning, leading to the girl never having to spin again. We might draw a link between these three and the mythological fates. Listeners who heard the recent episode of the Folklore Podcast on Storytelling with John Buckeridge will also recognise his version of this tale in his telling of the story Pignut, the Grimm brothers, German academics of the 19th century, were among the most prolific collectors of folklore and folk tales of their time. Germanic folklore is quite rich with references to spinning and weaving. The Song of the Spear, quoted in the Scandinavian Jarls saga, is the battle song of the Valkyries and was overheard by Doward on the morning of the Battle of Clontarf. Doward saw twelve folk riding together to a bower, and followed them when they went from his sight. Looking through a window slit at the bower, he saw that the twelve women had set up a horrific loom on which they were working. The weights were men's heads, and the weft was their entrails. They used a sword for a shuttle, and arrows for reels, and sang their songs as they worked, one of which started. See, warp is stretched, for warriors fall, low, weft in loom, tis wet with blood, now fight foreboding, neath friend's swift fingers, our grey woof waxeth, with war's alarms, our warp blood red, our weft coarse blue. In the mythology of Germany itself, there were two goddesses who were associated with spinning and weaving, One was Holder, or Frau Holler, and the other was Perchter, also sometimes known as Frau Birchter, or alternatively, Bertha. You should note a link here to the character of Mother Goose. We may find other parallels within the stories collected by the Grimm brothers. For example, in the story of Spindle, Shuttle and Needle, the female protagonist is spinning while chanting a verse to bring a true love to her. In the English, this translates as Spindle, my spindle, haste, haste thee away, and here to my house bring the wooer, I pray. The spindle, which is magical, flies from the girl's hand and unravels a thread behind it, which a prince follows in order to find the girl that he is destined to marry. A parallel here, of course, with the story of Theseus and the Minotaur in the form of the thread following to aid in a goal. The Grimm's collected folk beliefs and superstitions as well as these tales. In the 1835 book Deutsche Mythology, Jacob Grimm records that If, while riding a horse over land, a man should come upon a woman spinning, then that is a very bad sign. He should turn around and take another way. From spinning and weaving, we move on to work the thread in a different way, with the practice of knitting. As I said earlier, sadly the etymology of knitting does not come from the Egyptian god Knit, but rather from the Old English Knitten, which is linked with the Old Norse term Knitja and Germanic knüten, amongst others. All of these terms mean to tie or to knot or to bind together. Within traditional witchcraft law and practices, knots are frequently used for the purposes of creating binding spells and knitting may work along these lines, with glass needles being especially effective. The knot is believed to work as a container for the magic. Additionally, due to the repetitive nature of the act of knitting, it serves as a good method of reinforcing a spell, reciting the intention over and over with each stitch as a way of strengthening the work being done. Knot magic was traditionally employed by sailors who needed to raise a wind to sail. Generally, a piece of rope or cord would contain three knots. Untying the first would release a gentle wind, the second a strong wind, and the third a hurricane. Wool would sometimes be used by witches to assist in binding and trapping something which they did not want to be passed on, such as an ailment, for example. The Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Cornwall holds amongst its collections a wooden example of a Get Lost box, which was constructed for this purpose. To assist in containing the contents, the box is wound round many times with red wool. In a similar way, wishes could be captured in a wish box. Wool could also be used as part of the contents of a witch bottle. An example of one of these also held in the Museum of Witchcraft was accompanied by a note from the donor which stated Witch bottles are an old part of the folk magic tradition. They are traditionally used to keep bad spirits or influences away from your house. Some are filled with sharp metal objects and vinegar or urine. Another traditional form of witch bottle is packed with short pieces of thread The idea is that the threads form a dense maze, which will confuse the spirits, so they won't be able to get past the bottle. I have adapted the tradition a little. I do a lot of sewing, embroidery and knitting. Mostly I make magical artefacts. Every time I make something, I snip off the odd ends of thread or wool and put them into a bottle. Thus, these bottles, in addition to providing protection, should exude some of the creative and magical energy that went into their making. Clothing has always been seen as a status symbol, and knitted garments are no exception. Whilst it was once the case that knitted garments may have been the most expensive possession that someone owned, and would have been continually patched or mended, this practice tended to die out. In the same way that stories and meanings within folklore change over time, attitudes to knitted items did too, and the darning and mending practices fell out of favour, because rather than the garments being seen as lavish, they became a mark of poverty. The act of spinning or knitting, which once spanned classes, became more associated with the poorer and more impoverished end of the social scale. If you consider 19th century fiction, for example, you will see these attitudes represented quite clearly. The ladies in Jane Austen's novels would embroider, but not knit. Plain work such as that was the business of the lower class by this time. The history of knitting, in fact, developed in a similar way to the spread of folklore. The practice of the art itself can be traced across Europe, for example, in the same way that the spread of certain stories and beliefs can be. But also, the development of the techniques of knitting also grew in ways that were symbolic of the community in which the practitioners were living. Types of stitch were developed which represented those shapes and patterns which were observed in the natural world around the knitter. Stitches such as little leaf lace, travelling vine or tree of life Early knitting patterns for garments were not written down, but were passed orally from adult to child, or from master to apprentice, in exactly the same way that early stories or beliefs were handed down and remembered. In the same way that stories and folklore eventually began to be recorded in the printed word, via pamphlets or chapbooks, a topic which we covered in Season 1 of the Folklore podcast, so printed instructions for garments also began to appear in the 19th century. To finish off this examination of the topic, we come up to date and turn to the developing field of urban folklore. As the boundaries between rural life and city life become increasingly blurred in the modern world, we find more and more practices and beliefs, which were certainly at one time seen as the domain of the country-dweller being absorbed and acted out in the urban landscape. Such things as wassails, again covered before on the podcast in our look at apple Law no longer take place just in orchards, but may be found in urban parks or even outside high street off-licences. Wool has also made its way into the urban sprawl in the 21st century in the form of what we now sometimes term yarn bombing, that is the act of covering or decorating parts of the landscape around us with woollen artefacts. In an article in the Daily Telegraph newspaper in January of 2009, Guerrilla knitting, as it was originally termed, was noted as being initially almost exclusively about reclaiming and personalising sterile and cold public places. The exact origins of the idea are not 100% certain, as is often the case even with newer folklore. There are certainly examples recorded as early as May 2004 in Den Helder in the Netherlands. And in 2005, knitters in Texas in the United States utilised their leftover or unfinished knitting projects for the purpose. The start of the movement is often attributed to Houston resident Magda Sayeg. She says she first had the idea in 2005 when she covered the door handle of her boutique with a custom-made woolen cosy. However, earlier than this, in 2002, artist Sharon Sholian was knitting stump cosies for felled trees in Oregon. The movement progressed over time and innovated with the creation of the Stitched Story. This concept is generally attributed to Lauren O'Farrell from London, who founded a graffiti knitting collective called Knit the City. Their first installation in August 2009 was titled Web of Woe. Lauren did not like the more violent connotations of the term yarn-bombing from the American examples, and instead employed the slightly tamer term of yarn-storming to describe her group's activities. The Knit the City Collective maintained a sense of humour about the group's origins, and so, whenever they were interviewed, the six original members would tell a different story as to how the group came about. To further add to the air of mystery, the group members used superhero style street names. O'Farrell's was Deadly Knitshade. Others included Knitting Ninja and The Purple Pearl. In late August of 2009, Knit the City became the first collective to publicize a live yarn storm on Twitter involving the six churches of the Oranges and Lemons nursery rhyme. Called Oranges and Lemons Odyssey, Images of the six-hour installation were published on the Twitter feed in real time. From small beginnings with a cosy for a wooden barrier in Covent Garden, and afterwards probably their most well-known piece in the form of a phone box cosy in Parliament Square, the group have since shown work at the Tate Britain, and had commissions from large knitwear companies and other groups such as the Nintendo Corporation. Knit the City would add paper or fabric tags onto their pieces of work carrying the logo and their website address along with the phrase Confess your theft. Members of the public were encouraged to take the items away and report back. We may take much from this example away with us to look at the dissemination of similar pieces of folklore in the landscape today. Yarnstorming has become quite common. Recently, we've begun to see a proliferation of painted stones in the landscape, again often bearing Twitter hashtags so that finders can report back. This idea stems from the hobby of geocaching, amongst other things. And all of this comes from ideas such as the anonymous leaving of offerings on wayside graves or other markers, love locks, and other contemporary assemblages, which all goes a long way to demonstrate how the beliefs and ideas of our ancestors continue to proliferate through our modern lives in many and varied ways, and which, as I have said many times before, demonstrate why rather than being a subject to be sidelined or demeaned, folklore is a subject which should hold an ongoing fascination for us all. This episode of The Folklore Podcast was written by me, Mark Norman, with research assistance by Tracy Norman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mark Norman. Find out more about my writing and research at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore.com The Folklore Podcast Art Director is Melissa Martell. Find her work at www.mdmcreate.com. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to, but it is an enormous amount of work to research, create, record and write two of these episodes every month. And so, we have created a simple way in which you can help to support the ongoing life of the Folklore Podcast please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and click on support. There are various ways that you can help and they don't all involve giving us money. Even just leaving a simple review on iTunes or other podcast apps helps to grow our audience. So please do visit and take a moment to help us to keep going. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gerdy Bird